With Thanksgiving next Thursday, it's important to stop for a moment to understand the real reason for this national holiday. Why do we observe Thanksgiving? And how did it come to exist? Have we gotten way off course in our cultural celebrations of this 400-year-old American celebration? Well, let's talk turkey. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We the Free. Thanksgiving has me thinking about some delicious holiday foods, and speaking of holiday foods, Good Ranchers has some delicious deals on Black Friday. All you have to do is subscribe to one of their specialty boxes, like the, the Ranchers Classic Box. It's a collection of beef and chicken cuts from American farmers, and you schedule how often you want it delivered, and on Black Friday only, they'll give you a free protein for a year if you sign up a free protein of your choice. If you, if you click the link down in the show notes, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm just salivating just thinking about it. So check out Good Ranchers today. Welcome to the 15th episode of We The Free. Thanksgiving is next Thursday. I'll be taking the week off of the show, so we will not have an episode next week. But you may see some sort of announcement from me, so be on the lookout for that. You don't want to miss it. And then we'll be back on November 30th with lots of news and Christian cultural commentary. You know, the story of Thanksgiving is an American story and a Judeo-Christian story that must be defended and preserved. And that's exactly what we will do today. Its defense is critical now more than ever. And why is that? Because we're living in a time of our history being erased and destroyed and torn down or simply excluded from public teaching. I can tell you without a doubt that I have learned more, more history outside of public education than I ever did in 12 years of our government's indoctrination mills. And that's no knock to all of the history teachers I've had because they're just teaching what is expected of them. But what, it, what even is the purpose of all this destruction and exclusion of American history? Why are people tearing down statues and melting them down? Why are the American forefathers the most hated they have ever been? Why are schools across the country giving credence to the phony and, and fabricated scholarship of the 1619 Project? And is it any coincidence that the American church, with her traditionalism and, and biblicality, is being defaced and corrupted at the same time? Towards the end of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, the demon, Screwtape, is describing one of their modes of attack against humanity, which has to do with the prevention of the transfer of knowledge, wisdom, and information. How the forces of evil seek to block this pivotal information from passing forward into consecutive generations. He says, only the learned read old books, and we have now so dealt with the learned that they are of all men, the least likely to acquire wisdom by doing so. We have done this by inculcating the historical point of view. When a learned man is 
presented with any statement in an ancient author, the one question he never asks is whether it is true. In other words, the most knowledgeable in society are the and, and the most well-read, uh, but they don't absorb the truths in these ancient or historical texts like history books or the Bible itself, for the reason Screwtape would go on to admit. He then says, And since we cannot deceive the whole human race all the time, it is most important thus to cut every generation off from all others. For where learning makes a free commerce between the ages, there is always the danger that the characteristic errors of one may be corrected by the characteristic truths of another. Thus you can see the enemy and his legions do not want us to know and understand the past. Why is that? Well, as writer and philosopher George Santayana famously said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. And Winston Churchill would put his own spin on that quote. But the idea here is one of the many strategies of the enemy is to prevent humanity, not just Christians, from learning the truth which can be gleaned from the past. Because when we do genuinely learn the truth, we're able to right wrongs and avoid sin. Stupidity, miseducation, ignorance, and manipulation perpetuates sins, problems, and struggles from one generation to the next. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just look around you. It, it is literally everywhere. Practically every headline is riddled with the consequences of unlearned and uneducated generations in America and abroad. And yet, this spiritual concept is the foundation for the philosophical explanation for these issues. I've briefly touched on this subject and this philosophical literature before, but in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels infamously said, Communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and all morality. Instead of constituting them on a new basis, it therefore acts in contradiction to all past historical experience. In other words, the fathers of communism, which is the iron-fisted version of socialism, proposed a political and economical and philosophical system that was completely opposed to eternal truths, religion, and morality, among other things, and perhaps no other civilization embraced this aspect of communism more than the Chinese in the previous century. When the Chinese Cultural Revolution took place in the 60s and the 70s, Mao Zedong sought to destroy any aspect of their history that he could find. I mean, artists, intellectuals, educators, and historians were labeled as counter-revolutionaries or revisionists. And most of their traditional artifacts, like their pieces of art and, and historical sites and symbols, were destroyed. And why? Because they resembled the past. The CCP destroyed temples, historical buildings, and ancient texts, and all of the people who represented the past faced 
public humiliation and forced labor and imprisonment and violent persecution. The Soviet Union did this with the church in the early 20th century, and Pol Pot did something similar in Cambodia. And this took place in Albania over the course of about 40 years. And of course, the Nazis did this in Germany. They reshaped German culture by replacing art and literature while persecuting artists and writers and intellectuals who didn't conform to Nazism. Now, there's no question that we're experiencing the same thing in the United States. And I'll be darned if I'm going to allow that to happen, and you should be as well. A prime example of this Americanized Marxism, or as some have called it, cultural Marxism, is the reformulation of Thanksgiving. What is Thanksgiving other than some day where we don't have to go to work and we watch football and we have the misfortune of sitting with some family we don't like or to eat some food that for some reason we only eat you know, once a year? Why is it important to have such a proper historical view of this annual American event? Well, for the reason of knowing the truth, that we may be freed by it. Historically, the, the roots of Thanksgiving trace as far back as the Israelite feasts thousands of years ago. In Exodus 23, 14-17, God says to the whole nation of Israel, Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt." And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Also you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the firstfruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also the feasts of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. God was requiring, requiring, not requesting, there to be three times a year when all of the able men of Israel united in one place, one sanctuary, to participate in those three feasts, unleavened bread, the feast of the harvest, and the feast of the ingathering. All three of these are intended to be celebrations. They're not just like a, a, a church service or a mass. They're, they're like parties. And, and God was commanding them in detail for the first feast, unleavened bread, they were to commemorate their deliverance from Egyptian slavery. The second feast, harvest, was to thank God for the grain they harvested in the middle of the year. And then the third feast, the ingathering, was to give thanks for the final harvest or the gathering of, of the year. However, God got even more specific about these events in Leviticus, and, and there's also more added. You can look this up for yourself, but God gives detailed instructions for several feasts and festivals in Leviticus chapter 23. One of the first ones he details is the Feast of Firstfruits. This was to be celebrated the day after Passover. It kicked off the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it was all about expressing gratitude to God, which was displayed by obediently bringing an offering from the first yield or harvest to the synagogue. 
It was the feast of first fruits. He also details the feast of weeks, which would later become known as Pentecost. And that name itself tells us that the feast took took place 50 days after Passover. It celebrated the wheat harvest. And so in order to show God gratitude for that harvest, guess what they did? They brought a grain offering to the Lord, among other sacrifices. Then there's the festival of trumpets, which would eventually become Rosh Hashanah, or in Hebrew, Yom Teruah. And you could guess what the main feature of this festival was, but it was all about resting. Verse 24 says, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And these festivus days led into another holiday you may be familiar with, another festival and feast. However, this one is is quite different from the rest. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And this is the first one where we're talking about a solemn occasion, an annual date focused on cleansing of sin for everyone, all of the people of Israel. God says to them in verses 27 and 28, It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. And this was very serious to God, as He would go on to say that anyone who didn't humble themselves would be cut off from His people. And anyone who worked on that day, God said, I will destroy from among His people. That's how serious it was. And finally, the the next festival is the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Festival of Booths, or the Feast of the Ingathering, as we saw in Exodus. It's still known today as so uh, Sukkot. So now let's listen to the, the description in Leviticus. In verse 40, God tells them, you shall rejoice. Meaning this is the only festival where they're literally commanded to rejoice. Why? Because this was to be a reminder to them of God's goodness and, and his provision. It went by the name Festival of Booths because It was a reminder to their history of when they were living in tents in the wilderness and and God provided for them. He provided all their needs after delivering them from slavery. Alexander McLaren said, The Feast of Tabernacles was the consecration of joy. Other religions have had their festivals in which wild tumult and foul orgies have debased the worshipers to the level of their gods, lowercase g. How different the pure gladness of this feast before the Lord. So there was a definitive rejoicing and partying, but also a definitive holiness and honor expressed to the Lord. What else about Sukkot? God says to them, When you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. He speaks more of of resting and, and coincidentally, This feast was celebrated in late September and early October. And then it also ended in rest. And all of these were directly decreed 
and commanded by the Lord. Why? Because the Lord knows better than anybody what's good and beneficial for us individually and for us corporately. That is the intent behind all of His commands, and that is the intent of these feasts and festivals and holidays. Therefore, in His vast effort to create a holy people, a holy nation, He wanted them to take time off from work, worship Him, have some fun, and eat some good food together with each other. Now, that was written about 3,468 years ago in 1445 BC, but as time would go go on and, and Jesus arrives 1,500 years later, he and the disciples were celebrating these same festivals in the Gospels. In fact, pretty much every time Jesus is in Jerusalem, it's for one of these events, the big three. I mean, it kind of makes sense because most of the people, most of the Jewish people would be there together. So, of course, with Jesus, there was so much Old Testament fulfillment and in imagery and prophecy and symbolism, like Passover symbolized his death, unleavened bread and in, in his sinlessness. First fruit symbolized his resurrection. Pentecost and, and the Holy Spirit, the Day of Atonement, and His substitutionary sacrifice, etc. The Christian church is born, and they maintain some of these celebrations and thankfulness for centuries. The central location of the Christian church, kind of decentralized from the, the Middle East and Israel to much farther north in what would become Great Britain and the, the home of the Catholic Church. Of course, about 1,500 years after Christ, a certain German monk was nailing his 95 Thesis on the door of the, the castle church in Wittenberg, which gave birth to the Protestant Reformation or the Protestant Rebellion. This in itself became one of the main reasons for the pilgrimage to America, religious freedom. We don't have time to cover the, the whole Reformation today, but if, if you were dealing with corruption, uh, financial profiteering, the seclusion and exclusion uh, of the Bible to the priests alone and, and, and in Latin alone, religious freedom in, in this promised land across the sea sounds splendiferous. Just ask William Tyndall. The man was publicly executed for charges of heresy and treason, and tried by ecclesiastical authorities for translating the Bible into English. Before he was strangled and, and burned to death uh, by the church, his last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And unfortunately, he wouldn't live to see what would happen next. About 70 years later, English colonists began to make their way over to North America. The Jamestown settlement was established in 1607, but more importantly, the pilgrims, the English separatists seeking religious freedom, arrived at Plymouth in modern-day Massachusetts in 1620 Anno Domini. There's one incredible thing to mention before we get to what comes next in their story, and that is the Mayflower Compact. This agreement that these men signed uh, 
would serve as a pivotal document in American history. This is what they wrote. We, whose names are underwritten, have undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents, solemnly and mutually, in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof do enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and officers from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. These things influenced both by the Holy Scriptures and by the, t- the tyranny of the church gave birth to such American ideals as self-governance, consent of the governed, civil and religious liberty, American democracy, and more. The compact, the Mayflower Compact, was written in November of 1620, and a month later they arrived in Plymouth. They arrived in December 1620, and they faced a difficult winter season. Several of these pilgrims, in fact it's it's reported that half of them, died from exposure to the cold and illness and malnutrition. And they were severely struggling, just barely making it, and I'm sure many of them were thinking what the Israelites thought when, when they were struggling in the wilderness. Wish I'd stayed in Egypt, or wish I'd stayed in England. But as the snow and the cold began to subside, the local Native Americans, the Wampanoag Indians, helped the surviving English. You've heard some of these names, Squanto, Samoset, and Massasoit. They taught them how to cultivate native agriculture, like corn and beans and squash, along with hunting and fishing. So with their guidance, the pilgrims had a successful harvest that fall season in 1621. Therefore, since the pilgrims were so grateful and thankful for this bountiful harvest, these blessings of providence and the help of the native peoples, they decided to celebrate and give thanks. So sometime in in late September and early October in 1621, about the same time the Jews celebrate Sukkot, these pilgrims orchestrated a three-day feast in the company of around 50 pilgrims and 90 Wampanoag. And of course, they were festive. This is the account of one of those pilgrims that was there, Edward Winslow. He said this, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labor. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us and among the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which we brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, 
and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. In other words, the pilgrims, in order to celebrate their harvest, they take a break and give thanks to God. They began a feast complete with delicious foods, shooting guns, and and rejoicing, inviting their, their native friends to join them, eating some more, and then eating some more, and having a good time, and then eating some more. Sounds like the first Thanksgiving. But it, it wasn't official yet. Many more colonists would venture over from other parts of the world in, in pursuit of economic opportunities, religious liberty, escape from social turmoil, adventure, exploration, and ultimately freedom. About a century and a half later, we would go on to fight a revolutionary war and and declare ourselves an independent nation. And as you know, we celebrate our independence on July 4th, memorializing our declaration in uh, 1776. Then, as just a newborn nation, a year later, on uh, November 1st, 1777, the Continental Congress made a Thanksgiving proclamation, the first national Thanksgiving proclamation. It was written by the one and only Samuel Adams, and it reads, For as much as it is the indispensable duty of all men to adore the superintending providence of Almighty God, to acknowledge with gratitude their obligation to Him for benefits received, and to implore such farther blessings as they stand in need of, in it having pleased Him in His abundant mercy, not only to continue to us the innumerable bounties of His common providence, but also to smile upon us in the prosecution of a just and necessary war for the defense and establishment of our unalienable rights and liberties, particularly in that he hath been pleased in so great a measure to prosper the means used for the support of our troops and to crown our arms with most signal success. It is therefore recommended to the legislative or executive powers of these United States to set apart Thursday, the 18th day of December next, for solemn thanksgiving and praise. That at one time, and with one voice, the good people may express the grateful feelings of their hearts and consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor. We'll pause there for just a moment. Our first Congress in 1777 made a national declaration that we would, united as a nation, reserve a single day in which we would recognize and thank God for His blessings and protection and providence and guidance and more. The language is even similar to the Levitical language from God and the Mosaic language in the Hebrew text when they say, like, consecrate yourselves. It continues. And that, together with their sincere acknowledgments and offerings, they may join the penitent confession of their manifold sins, whereby they had forfeited every favor, and their humble and earnest supplication that it may please God 
through the merits of Jesus Christ, mercifully to forgive and blot them out of remembrance. So there you can see there is no question as to our Judeo-Christian foundation, even in this premier congress, this penitent language they're expressing, this collective expression of confessionary guilt is very reminiscent of the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. But here we have this decree of, of national humility, once again, giving thanks for God's mercy and His forgiveness. It continues, that it may please Him graciously to afford His blessing on the governments of these, these states respectively and prosper the public council of the whole, to inspire our commanders both by land and sea and all under them with that wisdom and fortitude which may render them fit instruments under the providence of Almighty God to secure for these United States the greatest of all human blessings, independence, and peace. They're saying they want the entire nation to pray for the wisdom and guidance of our authorities and those who lead our armed forces, insomuch as they may secure what they felt were the two most wonderful things a human can ever experience, independence and peace. That it may please him to prosper the trade and manufactures of the people and the labor of the husbandman, that our land may yield its increase, to take schools and seminaries of education so necessary for cultivating the principles of true liberty, virtue, and piety under His nurturing hand, and to prosper the means of religion for the promotion and enlargement of that kingdom which consisteth in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. When you read that, it's unbelievable when you consider that such places as Harvard, for example, used to be the foremost seminaries on the planet. It's named after John Harvard, an English minister. The original motto for Harvard from 1643 was Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, which means truth for Christ in the church. It was founded by the Puritans. And Yale was the same way, same thing with Columbia University, Dartmouth College, and even Princeton. These were the highest levels of American education, unlike anything else in the world where you were taught standard curriculum and science, but which include the spiritual truths pertinent to life. And here's our first Congress urging the nation to pray for these institutions, that they may be blessed. They viewed schools as the place for cultivating the principles of liberty, virtue, and piety, and to teach our students about the kingdom of God. And they finish by admonishing rest, saying, And it is further recommended that servile labor and such recreation as, though at other times innocent, may be unbecoming the purpose of this appointment, be omitted on so solemn an occasion. Twelve years later, on October 3rd, 1789, our very first president, George Washington, in his first presidential proclamation, designated a national day of thanksgiving and prayer. Listen to the religion expressed and consider the influence for such things. President Washington said this, 
Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor, and whereas both houses of Congress have, by their joint committee, requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the, the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one, now lately instituted, for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge and in general for all the great and various favors which he has been pleased to confer upon us. So there's George Washington's proclamation of thanksgiving and prayer. And you can see here for the second time, the designation was assigned to a Thursday. Now, I've, I've yet to discover an obvious reason for the election of Thursday as the staple day reserved for Thanksgiving, but the best reason I could find explained why elections are always on Tuesday, and, and that is it allowed people to travel, and it didn't interfere with two other important days of the week, Wednesday and Sunday. Wednesday being the day when most would travel to market, and Sunday being, you guessed it, the Sabbath. And in the spirit of the first Thanksgiving of 1621, the event beginning on Thursday just allowed for a few days of celebration, not just a single day towards the middle of the week. Now, after the United States Congress began, Thanksgiving proclamations and celebrations were left to the individual states to, to decide, which kind of contradicts the tradition of unification, tracing all the way back to the spiritual roots in the Old Testament. And this remained the case until one of our greatest presidents, Abraham Lincoln, solidified this remembrance and celebration even more. While President Lincoln was in office, he issued several proclamations very similar to the one you're about to see. For example, on November 28, 1861, he shut down the government for a, a local day of Thanksgiving. But on September 28, 1863, a 74-year-old woman named Sarah Josepha Hale 
wrote a letter to the president asking him to make Thanksgiving a fixed date and a national holiday. She said in her letter, You may have observed that for some years past, there has been an increasing interest felt in our land to have the Thanksgiving held on the same day in all the states. It now needs national recognition and authoritative fixation only to become permanently an American custom and institution. She also noted that she, as a magazine editor, had for the last 15 years been advocating for this, but I suppose she was ignored by Presidents uh, Fillmore and Pierce and Buchanan. Well, President Lincoln, in the middle of the throes of the Civil War, the Civil War issued this proclamation on October 3rd, 1863, exactly 74 years to the date after Washington's proclamation. And as I read this, just consider, the Battle of Gettysburg has just happened, and the Vicksburg and, and Chattanooga campaigns are going on, and Lincoln would give the, the famous Gettysburg Address the month after this proclamation. So this is what Lincoln said. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we're prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added which are so extraordinarily a nature that uh, they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and to provoke their aggression, peace has been preserved with all nations. Order has been maintained. The laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict. While that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union. Needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements, and the mines, as well of iron and coal as of the precious metals, have yielded even more abundantly than heretofore. Population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been uh, been made in the camp, the siege, and the battlefield, and, and the country rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. So pause there a moment. Lincoln is saying that despite the massive civil war, Almighty God has poured out his blessings on our nation more than ever. And to Lincoln, this fact is staggering. He says, No human counsel hath devised, nor hath, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless re remembered mercy. He's saying that only God could have arranged 
such an outcome, and this despite our collective sin. He speaks more to this in a moment, but what you can sense here is the traditional collective grief over unrighteousness, an attitude of, of repentance with gratitude towards the mercy of Almighty God. He goes on to say, It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. Now this is where Thanksgiving gets its uh, last Thursday of November designation, but listen to that last part and, and consider the historical moment. The United States are fighting a civil war to conjoin the states and, and defeat slavery. Ultimately, somewhere around 700,000 men would shed their blood in death on the battlefield. And listen to Lincoln's final words here. And I recommend to them, to the Americans, that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also, with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. In this proclamation for the holiday of Thanksgiving, praise and prayer, Lincoln describes the awfulness of this war with allusions to its reasonings. It's lamentable, but he says it's unavoidable. It had to be done in order for there to be the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. That is such an important word for our moment and time, but what a proclamation given just 160 years ago. That's only about six generations ago that that was proclaimed. And Thanksgiving was proclaimed by every single president after Lincoln. FDR tried to move the date back a week in 1939 to extend the, the Christmas shopping season, but that was not accepted by the American people. So to officially, federally concrete onto the national calendar this day of Thanksgiving, Congress issued a resolution in 1941, and then Roosevelt made a, a proclamation in 1942 officially designating the fourth Thursday in November as Thanksgiving Day. Not the last Thursday, but the fourth Thursday. Unfortunately, though, as time has advanced, so has secularism. Our nation has largely abandoned God. We're less virtuous, we're less religious, 
and we're ultimately the most ungrateful and spoiled we've ever been. Thanksgiving is no longer a religious holiday. It's, it's like Christmas. It's, it's been secular, secularized, materialized, and economized. It's all about football and, and fighting, parades and traveling. And now it's an opportunity for uh, the liberals and the cultural Marxists to demean the celebration, to trash our founders, to mock God, and to shame the very pilgrims who created this American tradition as the violent oppressors of the Native American people. Now, 400 years after that first Thanksgiving, our current American president barely even mentions God in his proclamation. Joe Biden says, This Thanksgiving, as homes across America fill with laughter, favorite family foods, and the joy of friends and relatives reuniting, we give thanks for everything that is good in our lives and reflect on the many blessings of our nation. This American spirit of gratitude dates back to our earliest days when the pilgrims celebrated a successful first harvest, thanks to the generosity and support of the Wampanoag people. It inspired George Washington to give his troops a day of prayer and thanks amid fierce fighting for American independence. It also moved Abraham Lincoln to proclaim Thanksgiving a national holiday honoring America's bounty and asking God to bring us together to care for one another and heal our nation. Today, Jill and I share that same gratitude for America's promise and for the millions of heroes across our country whose selflessness and care for their communities represent the best of who we are. Now, critics would point out Biden's use of thanks and blessings to suggest the ambiguity of God, but I would simply point them to the comparability of these prior proclamations I've just shown you. And he's not the first Democrat president to exclude the name of the Lord or reverence from the Thanksgiving proclamation. Lord knows they don't really believe in him. But let's take a look at a couple more. In Reagan's 85 proclamation, he said, As we gather in our homes and places of worship, we thank God for the blessings that grace our lives, and we ask for His continued guidance and patience. We also pause to remember that this joyous time of year is a time of sorrow and reflection for those who are hungry, alone, or victims of bigotry and poverty. In President Donald Trump's last proclamation in 2020, this is what he said, on Thanksgiving Day, we thank God for the abundant blessings in our lives. As we gather with family and friends to celebrate this season of generosity, hope, and gratitude, we commemorate America's founding traditions of faith, family, and friendship, and give thanks for the principles of freedom, liberty, and democracy that make our country exceptional in the history of the world. This November marks 400 years since the Mayflower and its passengers faced the unknown and set sail across the Atlantic Ocean. Propelled by hope for a brighter future, these intrepid men and women endured two long months at sea, tired and hungry to arrive in a new world full of potential. In the winter weather that greeted their arrival, they lost nearly half of their fellow travelers to exposure, disease, and starvation. 
Despite unimaginable hardships, these first Americans nevertheless remained firm in their faith and unwavering in their commitment to their dreams. They forged friendships with the Wampanoag tribe, fostered a spirit of common purpose among themselves, and trusted in God to provide for them. The following year, they celebrated a successful harvest alongside their Native American neighbors, the first Thanksgiving. The seminal event in the history of our nation is a continual reminder of the power of faith, love, perseverance, prayer, and fellowship. The Mayflower's arrival to the New World in 1620 also marks the arrival of the first seeds of democracy to our land. Absent the rule of a monarch in uncharted wilderness, these early settlers resolved to create their own government through what is known as the Mayflower Compact. Defined by majority rule through elected leaders responsible for creating, quote, just and equal laws, the Mayflower Compact represents the first chapter in the long tradition of self-determination and rule of law in America. 156 years later, our nation's founding fathers resolved to break free from England, building upon the Mayflower Compact to establish an enduring government for whose authority came solely quote, from the consent of the government, the governed. This year, as our nation continues to combat the coronavirus pandemic, we once again have joined together to overcome the challenges facing us. In the midst of suffering and loss, we are witnessing the remarkable courage and boundless generosity of the American people as they come to the aid of those in need, reflecting the spirit of those first settlers who worked together to meet the needs of their community. First responders, medical professionals, essential workers, neighbors, and countless other patriots have served and sacrificed for their fellow Americans, and the prayers of our people have once again lifted up our nation, providing comfort, healing, and strength during times of uncertainty. Despite unprecedented challenges, we have not faltered in the face of adversity. To the contrary, we have leveraged our strengths, to make significant breakthroughs that will end this crisis, rebuilding our stockpiles, revamping our manufacturing capabilities, and developing groundbreaking therapeutics and life-saving vaccines on record-shattering timeframes. During this season of gratitude, we also acknowledge those who cannot be with their families. This includes the brave American patriots of our armed forces who selflessly defend our sacred liberty at home and abroad. And we pause to remember the sacrifices of our law enforcement personnel and first responders. We are deeply grateful for all those who remain on watch over the holidays and keep us safe as we celebrate and give thanks for the blessings in our lives. This Thanksgiving, we reaffirm our everlasting gratitude for all that we enjoy, and we commemorate the legacy of generosity bestowed upon us by our forebearers. Although challenges remain, we will never yield in our request to live up to the promise of our heritage. As we gather with our loved ones, we resolve with abiding faith and patriotism to celebrate the joys of freedom and cherish the hope and peace of a brighter future ahead. Now therefore, I, Donald J. Trump, President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me, by the Constitution and the laws of the United States do hereby proclaim Thursday, November 26th, 
2020 as a national day of Thanksgiving. I encourage all Americans to gather in homes and places of worship to offer a prayer of thanks to God for our many blessings. Now, I'm not President Trump's biggest fan, but compared to Biden's last proclamation, that was excellent, and it was almost entirely encapsulated. It, it almost entirely encapsulated much of what we've discussed today, minus the all the talk about communism and Marxism and biblical history. So, in conclusion, why is Thanksgiving so important, and and why is defending its true origins and significance vital to our society? Well, the flourishing of our society is dependent on our dependence upon the Lord. Did you hear that? The flourishing of our society is dependent on our dependence on the Lord. Our attitude of dependence, and in turn, our thankfulness to Him, has almost all but been lost. So in the spirit of the true thanksgiving, let us cease working, stop for a minute, to unite and come together to worship God and thank Him for His grace and mercy, His providence and protection, but most importantly now, to beg for His forgiveness for how we've gone so astray, to ask for His continued blessing, to request His infinite wisdom for our leaders, and and in the spirit of 2 Chronicles 7.14, that we will humble ourselves, seek His face, and have faith that He will forgive our sin and heal our land. Consider some of these scriptures as we go today. Psalm 100 verse 4 tells us to enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Where is God? He's everywhere. That means always show God thanks all the time. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 tells us, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Gratitude is what God desires from you. Paul gives us the cure for anxiety in Philippians 4, 6-7. As he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Psalm 106, verse 1, gives us another reason to be grateful. It says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Paul also shared with us in Colossians 4.2, one of the main focuses of prayer is gratitude. He said, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. With that said, I hope you all have a truly wonderful Thanksgiving. Remember the reasons and the genuine traditions. For me personally, I'll be uh, waking up for an annual turkey shoot with my family. I'll be cooking brisket all night. We've got two family meals that day at lunch and then at dinner, and we'll take some time at both of those gatherings to thank God and to pray for our nation. And I hope you will too. Well, that's going to do it for me. What'll it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you are meant to be, and we will see you next time on We The Free.